0: Hello, and welcome to Ben Yeo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. How does economics need to change to cope with an intangible world? On this episode, I speak to Diane Coyle. We discuss how Diane is thinking about innovation, technology and intangibles, sustainability, inequality, and measuring beyond GDP. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you, enjoy. Hey everyone, I am super excited to be speaking to Diane Coyle. Diane is the Bennett Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge University, and she co-directs the Bennett Institute where she heads research under the themes of progress and productivity. Her work has touched innovation, technology, and intangibles, sustainability, inequality, and measuring beyond GDP. Her latest book, Cogs and Monsters, is published in October. Diane, welcome.
1: Uh, well, it's great Pete, to be. Here. It's great to be here talking to you. Thank you.
0: Great. So, is there such a thing as a radical centrist, and perhaps are you one?
1: Well, that's a difficult question to start off with. I'm certainly. I don't think of myself as being left or right party political at all. So I suppose that ticks the centrist box. Am I radical? Um, Well, I I hope so, Um, but particularly if that means thinking in new ways about how um, to solve some of the challenges society is facing, which are big and complicated. Social scientists call them wicked problems. What we've been trying so far very obviously hasn't worked. So I suppose um, by kind of deconstructing it, I'd have to answer yes to the question.
0: Great. And so you've worked with uh, Jason Furman Uh, reviewing competition market Uh, but did you know he is also a fairly prolific um, book reviewer which is another thing you might have in common with him
1: I believe he reviews on goodreads
0: yeah he does review
1: which I don't use very much and I review books on my blog Um, I read many more than I review the blog is about economics and business books and technology and a bit of politics and I read lots of fiction and pop science and other things too
0: Um, What's brought you to review so many books on your blog? Is it kind of just a way of remembering or are you trying to kind of reach a wider audience with your reading?
1: It's a bit of both. Um, It's a bit of a service. So people who might be interested in reading some non-technical economics and business books can get a quick readout on what I think about them. And if they know anything about what interests me, that might help them. So it's a bit that, and it's a bit, as you suggest, remembering myself what it's all about so it's a a short note I mean obviously if it's a book I'm going to use for my work I've got much more extensive notes on it and little stickies and all the pages and so on these are quite short as as they have to be for blog posts Um, but it seems to to, people seem to find it quite useful.
0: Yeah I, I do particularly and to me it also gives a glimpse of the kind of breadth of your work and thinking and I think this breadth is notable as I observe uh, you've been critical of some of the narrowness of certain economic thinking, both in terms of um, output and th- thought, but also where economists are drawn from. And like finance, economists seem to be uh, fairly white, fairly male and uh, not working class. Uh, whereas you have working class roots and have kind of this kind of more broad outreach. Um, as economics as a social science, how big a problem do you think this is and do you have any ideas on what can be done
1: there are there are two big questions in there i think one is about economics and one is about joining up thinking across silos more broadly than that so starting with the economics you know as you say it has become a very socially narrow subject Um, particularly i think in the anglo-saxon world And I'm less sure about the kind of sociology of economics in other countries. I think it's a little bit different, but not much because it's a very international subject. And you're not a social science if all your your people are drawn from quite affluent um, white male uh, 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 people asking the research questions, deciding what they think is important. You, You just don't know what questions to ask if everybody comes from the same background, that diversity of background is really important for social sciences. And a little bit of the problem is academic academic subjects more broadly, um, but not entirely. There are some other subjects, you know, computer science would be one, or um, philosophy is actually quite male-dominated and um, posh as well. Um, And uh, so that, that narrowness is a real problem, and I think it maps onto a narrowness in a way of thinking about what good economics involves. I'm a really strong defender of economics. It's a very powerful mode of analysis. It's very empirical now and is driven by logic and has some really great insights. But it's um, very focused on maximization models and um, a a certain limit about how you think the world changes and very, very little looking outside the subject. It's really hard to understand how markets operate if you don't know anything about the sociology of markets or even the ethnography of markets. And after the financial crisis, there was some great sociology published on on the financial markets. Economists had, had ignored that. So there's all of that. How does it change? Um, I think it's partly the good things that the professional associations are doing to go and talk to people in schools and communicate better and put a lot of emphasis, particularly on women economics, but now more broadly on people from um, different minority groups or different kinds of backgrounds. But I think the subject itself has to um, accept a wider definition of what good economics is about. And it's not just the same top five journals doing the same kind of narrow small question study with a limited range of techniques. Often, economists don't even... Um, rate qualitative research techniques when they're, you know, equally rigorous, and it's just a different form of data, really. So that's all the economics bit. I'm rabbiting on a bit, but I'll just go on to the other bit, which I feel really passionately about, and that's joining up knowledge across silos, because universities have become very departmentally siloed, and all of the promotion prospects depend on publication, which is in disciplinary journals. So it's really hard to address global warming, loss of biodiversity, um, grotesque income inequality, conflict, um, any of these subjects, you, you can't do that just from one discipline. So everybody's sort of burrowing away, plowing their own furrow to mix the metaphors. And we're not going to make progress. And all of that money that gets spent on research will not deliver all it could if we don't manage to find ways to work together across subjects. And so our institute here, the Bennett Institute is all about interdisciplinary working.
0: Yeah, I think that's really valuable. I see this in my world of investing that too many, particularly of the older generation, but even now, aren't taught, say, sustainability investment techniques, aren't taught about thinking about intangibles. It was all sort of a very standard, let's do an accounting model, let's do a DCF discount rate and see what see what comes out at the end of that, and therefore have missed all of these Uh, let's call them extra financial uh, capitals as well. And without people kind of challenging and thinking about them, it's quite hard to get that into uh, sort of mainstream uh, thinking and techniques. Um, I was uh, rereading your, I think 1997 book, uh, The Weightless World, and it showed a lot of great foresight on many of the uh, technology and intangible innovations we've had today. Um, But it seemed noticeable uh, to me, fast forward to today, that there weren't so many words on sustainability and the environment. Uh, so I'd be interested, sort of reflecting back, what do you feel you might have got uh, most right, and many and maybe some of those trends which are continuing, and maybe what you think about what you might have missed, and what again that is important for uh, today and thinking about the longer term.
1: It's a real coincidence you should raise that because I was thinking about it as a gap in the book yesterday. Um, I uh, was uh, rereading a book by um, Lash and Uri, John Lash, uh, John Uri and Scott Lash called Economies of Signs in Space. And it's a sociology book that came out a few years before my book, The Weightless World, um, but was on exactly the same territory about how digital was changing society. And um, uh, I read it after I'd, I'd published mine, but they did pick up on sustainability, actually, and it does feature in theirs, and I, I as you say, I, I completely miss that. Um, I think I did get some things right about the way the world of work might become more um, precarious, and you couldn't use companies to deliver government policy so easily, or um, the welfare state would have to change its structure, um, the geography of agglomeration economies, the way that things are clustered together, um, some of the potential for digital currencies which is I guess just starting to take off big time and so there are quite a few things I think I, I did um, identify as, as future trends uh, but with that one huge exception and um, I, I suppose I just had it in a separate bucket in my head having talked about how hard it was to cross silos um, it's just quite hard to join things up and I, I didn't do it so Maya culpa.
0: And you think uh, obviously from those comments that is probably going to be one of the major themes for the next uh, decade or two going forward.
1: It'll have to be when you see um, what's already happening in terms of weather events and um, you know the financial world as you know better than I do is starting to pick up on this with things like the Bank of England and other central banks getting in on taking account of climate risk or, or, or hopefully biodiversity risks soon as well which also matters a lot. Um, my colleague Matthew Agawala has done some work on climate-adjusted sovereign ratings, so finance world is, is getting there, I think. Um, but I I worry that people aren't really getting their heads around how big the changes need to be, or will be. If we see these kinds of extreme weather events every year, we're going to have climate refugees, we're going to have conflicts, and all of the spillovers that implies for us. And it's very easy for policymakers to, to do sh- small fixes, but not to realize that there's going to be a big change in the world and they need to do big fixes. So that's one of the things
0: preoccupying me at the moment. Yeah. It's that intersectional challenge. I mean, sticking with sustainability wider and the climate challenge, it seems, it, uh, my observations are there's a multitude of economists who back some form of carbon price in either a tax or a cap on trade, uh, continues to remain less popular with the public and thus with politicians, but given those intersectional challenges that we see, everything, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and they kind of think, is is this the best that um, you know current economic thinking can do with some of these challenges? So obviously, there is research and happening, in and more than that. Um, I mean, would you point to anything else that you think uh, economists are offering, in, in terms of the uh, of the climate challenge, or do you think without some sort of carbon price and that market mechanism? Apart as a sort of underlying foundation, some of these other ideas are are not going to get uh, are not going to get through.
1: I think we have to throw everything at it, and one tool won't be enough. So of course, I think a carbon price could be a powerful tool, but we'll have to see um, governments step in and mandate things or ban things, and uh, we'll have to see businesses uh, changing uh, their practices and um, you know figuring out quickly how not to use plastics and packaging and um, how to move away from using any internal combustion engines in their transportation, all of those things have to happen. So it's um, a question of how do you align all of that on a big enough scale that you you tip things towards the different model of production and consumption in the economy. And um, One of the most powerful things I think is and this is very nerdy. It's it's about economic statistics. It's about, because that's the way you understand what's happening in the world. And my colleague here in Cambridge, Partha Dasgupta, did a review for the Treasury on biodiversity, um, where he just made a really powerful case that the big failing of economists has been leaving nature outside of the economy. We've not put it inside the what we call the production boundary. So we haven't counted it. And there's not enough data on all of these things that are going on. We're just getting to the point where statisticians are measuring natural capital on an aggregate national scale and being able to track what happens with that. UN's accepting it, um, which is great, but you know step we've got to step up gear and measure uh, in detail what are the climate damages, what are the um, carbon impacts of consumption as well as production what's happening to biodiversity in, in different ecosystems with all the implications that might or might not have for human health and the food system. And, and, and joining up those dots again, as you're saying, Ben, because 7 million people die each year from pollution, the WHO says, which is more than has have died during the pandemic to date. Um, and we haven't been paying attention to the costs of pollution, the human capital costs, the economic costs of that. Um, so we've got to bring that into our thinking about how we run the economy. And yeah. um, the 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 specifics can do it, I think.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, we've only just really started tracking particulate matter, these small PMI two point five type things, and we're I think WHO, uh, you know, the limit they actually don't give a sort of limit of what they think is uh is healthy because they kind of think all of this particulate matter is is probably uh, damaging. Um, I wonder. There's a little bit of pushback I hear on natural capital in the sense that. Um people worry about whether the econometric techniques are sort of sophisticated enough in the round uh, to sort of to measure and and uh, and deal with this. Uh, do you feel they are? And is that intersection, I guess with say systems, biology, or ecology there that actually the picture we paint is probably good enough. You don't want to get into this case of going to seven decimal places where you've got the kind of order of magnitude of things, right? Or is there still research which needs to be done in terms of getting these techniques robust enough that we feel that we can have some sort of natural capital accounting? Uh, Because then I think if that feels robust, there is no uh, theoretical reason that might not start to flow into corporate accounts of some sort, which obviously financial accounting. But if there was some natural capital accounting and accounts, then that's something where investors and other stakeholders can then start to hold Uh, businesses uh, somewhat accountable to, or could even vote certain ways with the business model, uh, but is is so absent at the moment that it's very hard to know where to start.
1: That's really interesting, because I often get a different kind of pushback, which is that you shouldn't be trying to quantify and put a a monetary value on things that are intrinsically valuable. Um, To which my answer is that uh, if you don't do some kind of accounting, you're putting a value of zero, which we know is the wrong answer. And I suppose I'd give the same answer to your question, which is, we pro- probably don't have the right answer, but is a broad brush one better than none? I think it. I think it is. Um, there's obviously a need for more data and more granular data. And there are definitional challenges about that, particularly with um, ecosystems and biodiversity. Um, but the big problem, it seems to me, is not so much um, technique as integrating... Different disciplines, and you know, the, the climate and the economic and political changes, for instance. So, I talked about Matthew's paper with his co authors, and they um, run a climate model and look at GDP impacts. But what ideally you'd want to do is say, Well, this means that you know, these countries in the Middle East are going to become uninhabitable, so what does that imply? What do the people there do, and what are the social and political spillovers from that. But I suppose there's um, a really nice Paul Krugman article from years and years ago where he talks about why he became an economist and it was about the idea of psychohistory in the Asimov Foundation trilogy. And you know that takes you towards that grand ambition of integrated knowledge, which is probably complete nonsense.
0: <laughs> well, we can we can aspire to the science fiction <laughs> world or the, the, the solar science fiction world. Um, Another debate I kind of hear around this uh, comes from, I guess, uh, so-called uh, degrowth thinkers such as maybe Kate Roworth or Jason Hickel. Uh, and it seems to me that many others think that degrowth is very challenging uh, because of uh, the idea of lifting poor uh, the poor in a country or even between countries, between richer countries or poorer countries or the poor within, uh, within richer countries. Uh, where do you see uh, the role for growth and is therefore... Uh, degrowth uh, economics, some, anything we can learn from that, or is, is it going to go down the wrong path because of the challenges about raising people up from poverty?
1: A, a couple of weeks ago, I took part in a, a round table um, with African economists who were very critical of degrowth for exactly the reason that you just explained. Um, they don't see it as a model for their thinking at all, so they were pushing back a lot against donut models and so on. So there's definitely that and I think some of the degrowth advocates don't really um, articulate clearly what the implications of of their approach are. But I have a different objection to it, which is it's kind of misunderstanding of what economists mean by growth. And you know, as we were talking about the weightless world, there has been uh, a a separation between growth of material um, used in the economy and creation of value in the economy. That if you say to me, we want to keep GDP as it is, or reduce GDP, it's not saying to me, uh, you can't buy five handbags, you can only have one. It's saying to me, actually, we can't invent a vaccine because that's valuable, and it would add to GDP. A lot of GDP is ideas, it's services. So I think it really requires a much more sophisticated understanding of what growth is and how that translates into economic measures like, like GDP. Um, so, so I'm not a fan of degrowth while at the same time completely respecting the imperative to do something about sustainability.
0: Yes, I think Mark Carney said something similar about he was challenged as in, do you think you can have, uh, you know, sort of infinite growth and that type of thing? And his reply is that, well, you could have carbon light growth. You can have, you know, physical capital, not intensive type of type of growth. And, you know, talking about sort of the digital world, you know, you can have things on Fortnite. You're buying digital clothes to show off with not necessarily uh physical clothes um yeah, and of course that uses energy so it's not there's no physical cost but it's you know that's
1: the kind of calculation you need to make in the end thermodynamics will kick in so infinite growth in that sense is not possible
0: sure yeah but perhaps a a, a long way out or not um i can kind of, that kind of brings me to the thinking about this aphorism which we got two halves of already, which is what gets measured gets managed. But then there's another one, which is this idea that not everything that can be counted really counts, uh, which is uh, and then the opposite about some things which are really important, but are really hard to count. And your book on GDP seems to me to argue that GDP did measure something fairly useful in the last 100 years, 200 years, and, and maybe going back. But as the world has moved much more intangible, and we've had to address ideas like natural capital, social capital, human, intellectual, and, and, the, and the like, that current thinking about what GDP encompasses is, is somewhat uh, uh, inadequate. So uh, where do you think that what we're measuring at the moment is getting it right, and where do you think we're really, uh, we're really falling short?
1: Um I do, as you say, think the gap between GDP and what we might care about in terms of economic well-being or welfare is growing and making GDP less and less useful. There was a paper by um, an economist called Zvi Grilichus, who taught me at Harvard many years ago, and he calculated what proportion of the US economy he thought was unmeasurable or hard to measure. And it was, I think it was something like 43% in 1994. And I did. I redid the calculation, and I think it's something like 23% now is easy to measure and therefore 77% is hard to measure. And it's because um, ideas are creating so much more of the value. And that might be uh, because it's in services and the quality of the service really matters. And so the price there is a signal of quality and you can't use it to calculate real GDP in the same way. Uh, or there's quality change in all the electronics goods that we buy all the time, or there are new goods like new vaccines and it's really hard to figure out how to incorporate those. So just generally the way the economy has changed makes it hard to do this division that we always do between here's the pounds or dollars amount spent in the economy and here's what we think about it in real terms or volume terms. Because although it's called real, it's an abstraction, you know, GDP isn't a natural thing anyway. And and that abstraction that we use and we get the growth figures, 0.2% or whatever it is each quarter, it's just very hard to interpret what it means now, I think.
0: And so uh, there's a lot of talk in uh, the media and actually, I guess, economists about so-called UK productivity challenge or the global productivity challenge. Um, But I guess there's been some pushback about how much of that challenge is really uh, a measurement uh, challenge, uh, partly measurement, and how much it's been based on some causal factors which uh, no one quite uh, understands. Uh, from what your point of view, do you think much of it is a measurement challenge and what do you think are the root causes of it in your opinion?
1: Um, so th- there are definitely measurement issues to think about. That doesn't mean that there are no headwinds against productivity, either debt hangover from the financial crisis, demographic change, um, you know, the time it takes companies to adopt new technologies. And there are lots of historical examples of how slow that can be. And it's now being called the productivity J curve by Eric Eric Brynjolfsson and and his um, colleagues, that all of that's real, um, if I can use that word. It doesn't mean that GDP is getting worse at measuring what GDP measures, but that's different from what you might be interested in measuring. And so we might become much more interested in measuring uh, a different meaning of productivity. So if I can think of an example, I'm trying to think about time and productivity now because in services and actually a lot of manufacturing, that productivity gains have been about saving time, uh, doing routine things faster or squeezing out unproductive time from processes and logistics systems. But there are also services where time spent will increase the quality and therefore arguably the productivity of the service. So if I'm getting um, a blood test done, I want it to be quick, no time wasted. If I'm in intensive care, I want to have a dedicated ICU nurse who can spend all their time looking after me. So, I'm playing around with this idea about is there just a completely different way of thinking about productivity than take GDP and do some things to it to calculate what the productivity level ought to be? So, that's a very long winded way of saying uh, I think there is a puzzle. I think there are some good reasons for believing it's not all about measurement, but that doesn't mean the measurement questions aren't really interesting. They're about concepts, really.
0: Um, and I think uh, you've been relatively critical of some of, say, um, uh happiness indexes as a sort of uh, alternative. And there's some other things out there like a, like a peace index. Um, you've got human development index and, and things like that. Um, I'd be interested in, in what currently you're thinking might replace or supplement some thinking around GDP and whether you, you continue to remain slightly critical of what sort of uh, perhaps happiness economics or some of the claims that happiness economics makes versus GDP.
1: I am still critical about them one reason being that they're kind of black box theories that you can do econometrics regressions that show you that well-being measures stated life satisfaction measures are positively correlated with various things um but you don't know that there's no kind of theory that you that has been tested about it so you can certainly advocate cognitive behavioral therapy for mental health reasons that might be a really good thing to do but if the person suffering the mental health problems, is living in a damp flat with no money, then it's not really going to solve the problems for them. Um, It's also, you know, it's the same challenge as with GDP. You're trying to reduce a complex assessment of how things are going into one number. And the thing about GDP is there's a whole load of economic theory about how you combine things to get that one number. And a lot of the alternatives are just quite arbitrary. And the Human Development Index, for example, has some really unpleasant implications about how you value life in different countries, just because of the way it mooshes together incomes and um, life expectancy. And then the other issue I have about some of the happiness advocates is that they, they're kind of, it's um, old-fashioned utilitarian. its its It's doing it top down to people. We will do happiness to you. There's that flavor about it that I just as a, you know, Bolshe northerner don't particularly like.
0: <laughs> Great, uh, yeah, that's food for thought. Um, yeah, I think that's right, just, uh, so I studied some neuroscience and experimental psychology and there was always this more suspicion about if you couldn't tie it into a kind of testable model or, or a theory about what was coming about, it's all fine to have your empirical data and something else, but it, it's so much stronger when it is actually Backed in something biological or real world, uh, mm-hmm. real world in basis.
1: and basis. So so, we, well, we might get there, but I think it's, it's not, there yet, yeah, there's we're a not lot there yet. Strong policy claims being made.
0: Um, so circling back uh, to Jason Furman, uh, we said at the start, so you've been uh, interested in, in competition uh, policy and part of the review. Uh, and I guess one strand of thinking is that we have, say, some of these mega corporations, or particularly uh, technology corporations, um, and they're stifling competition much harder to be, say, tech startups and things like that, and therefore that's bad uh, for uh, for consumers. And then I guess they argue that um, they are, uh, you know, they don't have as much. I guess what is it vertical? Uh, sort of competition, so these startups could happen in a sort of horizontal place. And yes, they might buy might buy them up, but they're they're still appearing and going. And aren't we giving uh, so much, um, you know, value to consumers by prov- providing our products? And you know, some of these for free or, or for what the things uh, like that. Uh, and I think you know the re- review tended to sort of say, no, actually, there there probably is a uh, an issue with sort of competition and fluidity and dynamism and that would actually be better for the economy uh and uh and consumers um have i kind of read that right and from your point of view kind of now a couple of years down the line post pandemic where you know a lot of companies kind of have been very uh, helpful but it has been quite concentrated as well has that changed your view
1: that these are clearly services that people really value i did a piece of work with um Uh, uh, co-author David Nian looking at um, what people say they would need to be paid to give up different free services. We included parks, but we also looked at online shopping, search, Facebook, you know, all the the obvious things. Um, We managed to run it in February 2020, May 2020, and February 2021. So the timing was very lucky. And uh, people uh, state high median values for a lot of these services, particularly search and personal email, they stand out compared to all the others. um, But parks as well. And uh, they changed in the ways you'd expect with the lockdown. So online shopping became much more valued uh, by um, particularly older groups of people. So um, they're highly valued. And as a policymaker, you should interfere with that cautiously. So I'm not a fan of the idea that you break up these companies because a lot of the value that they deliver to people is that they have the network effects and they link up all kinds of different things. But the issue is, can people with better technologies get into the market in the way Google took over from Yahoo or Facebook took over from MySpace? And I still think, no, they, they can't now. So personally, I think data access is one of the um, barriers to competition. And finding some way to make the services more interoperable seems quite important. You know, if you think about it, we can all text each other, use SMS and mobile calls because um, the the barriers were not engineered in. And uh, yet they have been engineered in with social media, for instance. So thinking about that and thinking about rights of data access seems important to me, but also scrutinizing mergers much more and um, thinking about the whole raft of things, um, you know, kill zone acquisitions, the things that might make startups hesitate to go into a certain area if they think Amazon is going to get into it ahead of them, and all of those things need looking at. So all the competition authorities, uh, EU, US, China also, uh, and the UK are looking at ways to tackle this. And I don't think there's a settled view about the right thing to do. So um, things will get tried and we'll see how it goes. I don't know what the chances of success are. Do I think Google will not be a big and powerful company in 10 years time? I suspect it will be. Uh,
0: Maybe touching on thoughts on uh, inequality uh, and maybe just through the lens of uh, share of capital labor uh, and potentially pay. um, I know there's been commentary and you made some comments as well that senior management pay at a lot of companies has really escalated, particularly when you look at it Um, of multiples of of average worker pay. Uh, On the other hand, you also see this across all sectors, sort of children's book authors at the very top are also making more money, uh, sports people, footballers. So it it seems to be a a uh, cross-sector-wide phenomena. Um, And I'm actually often asked to think about sort of these pay because we have these concepts of of fairness as well. Uh, On the other hand, you know, some of these companies are now, a sort of astonishing number of a trillion dollars of market cap and they would claim if you know you're increasing that 10 percent, you're making a hundred billion dollars of value so to get one percent of that value might seem uh might seem reasonable even though it might not seem uh that reasonable uh to uh to a worker um so i, I was wondering what you're thinking about uh, inequality and what we might want to do about that and whether i guess this is a side effect of that capitalistic incentive fruit and is there Are there ways of sort of modifying that which doesn't destroy the uh, incentive system uh, as well? Or or do you think it needs uh, a more thorough examination and overhaul?
1: I think it's become socially toxic that there are people who do earn so much money. And I'm very skeptical that an individual makes so much difference to corporate outcomes that they deserve 1% of the gain and there's been an upward ratchet. And, uh, you know, I, I, in my consultancy days, when I tried um, helping companies write their annual reports, you would see their remuneration committee say, well, we want to attract the best people, so we'll pay in the top quartile of our peer group. And then the next year, everybody does the same thing, and the next year, everybody does the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it just shifts upwards. and doesn't reflect, uh, you know, so it's supposed to be about incentives, but it's not really, it's just about, the structure of the way that they, they set the incentives. And um, the other pernicious effect of it all is that options, stock options plans give companies an incentive to buy back. And that means they're not investing in better products and, and new activities. So all in all, I think the system really is problematic. You know, As you say in your question, the superstar phenomenon pushes the other way and it's, it's a genuine phenomenon. The way I think about it is there's a, there's a Milton Friedman essay from the 60s where he talks about why inequality is perfectly acceptable. And he goes through all of these thought experiments. Uh, so somebody um, who spends a long time training, do they not deserve higher pay? Well, most people say, yes, of course they do. Somebody's got a particular um, uh, natural talent. They're a brilliant actor. The you... Uh, resent them becoming a movie star even if the economics of and technology of movies mean that they're getting so much more money than Betty Davis used to back in the day and people don't really mind that and you get through this list and it's all very reasonable and then at the end he says but if it becomes so unequal that it's socially divisive then you you tear up all of those things and you and you fix it so I think if if Milton Friedman said inequality can become too divisive then we should probably take that seriously and there are people who lead lives that are so totally separate they've got no idea how the rest of their community how their fellow citizens are living it's really I I think it's really unhealthy and many rich people seem to think that they don't owe society why should they pay their taxes so they've become a kind of group apart and it seems to me really unhealthy what what, what do you think
0: yeah. well uh, the counter arguments uh, or some of the counter arguments i guess are that or, or, okay i'll say one thing that it seems to be when you ask people people mind less about entrepreneurs than they do about corporate managers although even there is a thing so we mind less about the richard bransons and the jeff b of the world because like you pointed out like a sports person they kind of did it all themselves as opposed to someone who's come up, not the founder or put their own life in risk capital, but came up a, came up as a, as a manager. So there's, there's a kind of interesting question about the society view those people differently. Um, CEOs and very market-based people would also sometimes argue that, oh, we are worth more than 1% because when we leave, we see our stock price goes down 5%. Um, that would be one argument. And then the argument people make with the stock buyback is that actually you, you're meant to do stock buybacks or dividends after you've done all of your productive investment in long-term uh, R&D and things like that. There's obviously counter arguments about maybe there was not long-term or, or short-term enough, but at least um, uh, that's the argument there. Um, I think uh, to the points that you alluded to, because the problems are across so many sectors and also uh, non-corporate sort of corporate as well as corporate, um, maybe I think you alluded to we simply kind of need higher taxes that people actually pay. And actually, there is an increasing amount of people I think even in senior managers who do earn a lot, who, who would be prepared, uh, who would be prepared to do that. Um, and, and interestingly, circling back to uh, something that Jason Furman has said, uh, sort of recently, um, he would view, uh, he was saying that higher taxes as one of those areas where, uh he doesn't think it'll particularly help, say, growth or productivity or anything, but the, the fairness aspect with the fact that it should be, he thinks, broadly neutral to where he's seeing growth and productivity uh, would be a positive. And that would allude to your point that you were making uh, via Friedman that that sense of fairness means you don't get those divisions. Because the systematic second order point around, aside from the, the people and the structure, which again, that's what you allude to, is the social contract or the social capital. And there are signs trust has gone down, maybe social capital is eroded. And to the extent that this sense of fairness is eroding that, then on a systems level, uh, a little bit like a lot of these things we're talking about sustainable and climate, on the systems level, um, that can be and continues to be actually quite troubling and maybe destructive. And so you do have to lean against that, even though you can look at the individual case. And, and that, seems, that seems fair. But i i don't know whether you can just do it through the corporate arm when you have a the issue across non-corporates and you see it within inequality so actually maybe we should just you know do these higher taxes and then we actually know from my reading of it, again, I'm not actually a, a trained economist, I do this sort of investing lens, but things like investing in education, investing in our children, investing in our natural capital, all of those are kind of win-wins on a long-term basis. They get really high returns, whether they're social returns or financial returns. So it's, yeah. it seems that capital allocation, it's, it's not that we lack good ideas for where we could put those, that tax money, we, we, we have them, so that would seem to me to make sense. But the, yeah. the actual pressure on individual company votes, which is the lens that we see it, are, are currently quite fraught uh, because of that. And, and therefore, I do think this is something where the system, and, and by that it will probably have to be government, it needs to nudge it a little bit harder than just trying to let the, well, I get, you know, no markets are completely free, right? They're social contracts and, and regulated. It, it's not something that this former market can actually solve by, by itself.
1: Uh, Yes, I agree. And I suppose if if that doesn't happen, and you're pessimistic, we're in the world of um, Thomas Piketty or Walter Scheidel, where the thing that does bring about a reversal and an equalization is some kind of catastrophe, you know, war or disaster of some kind. And if we want to avoid that, maybe we should try doing something else.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, fall of the Roman Empire and and all of that. maybe uh, just touching on a couple of other of your experiences, I'm kind of thinking uh, boards and maybe BBC and also uh, Investor Chronicle. Um, I I was thinking about uh, your work on the BBC at that very high level. Maybe you can give us a glimpse into what boards actually do and the kind of challenges they have managing big complex organisations where you have some see-through but you obviously won't have everything. I mean, BBC seems really interesting to me. Public good. Um, When I have a glimpse on social media, it seems to be attacked from both the right and the left, which seems to me that means maybe they're doing a kind of balancing job because they can attack from both sides. And you've got, you know, the strategic board, which has got a lot of different challenges uh, to handle. Um, Can you get a glimpse of, like, what is that actually like and and how hard is it?
1: Well, I can try. It's a big question. So I think the BBC is a really important um, institution in the UK for um, social and cultural and educational reasons, the, the public service broadcasting that it does, but also as an industrial policy. And I think this is underappreciated. It's got a great engineering department. It started out as a deliberate industrial policy to make sure this country had a foothold in the emerging radio industry. And it has, through um, investing in R&D, through training, uh, a lot of people who work in the industry, and lastly through providing a market for all kinds of uh, broadcast content, but also bringing new music to the audience and commissioning classical music, so we're one of the few net exporters of music in the world, and I think that industrial policy that nobody talks about through the BBC is part of that. Having said that, um, I found being on the BBC Trust, the predecessor to the current board, um, and dealing with the management, just unbelievably frustrating. And I think it's for all the reasons that you're hinting at about non-executive roles. And it's it's partly an information problem because you can set up all kinds of processes and uh, board packs to try and make sure you know what's going on. You're never going to know what's going on in the same way that the executive are. And that's an inherent challenge uh, to which you know you can only make sure that you talk to lots of other people outside as well. Part of the process um, for me was a kind of formal approval process that involved working with Ofcom and talking to industry stakeholders so um, I heard all the complaints that they always made about BBC being too dominant in the market and um, you know the Ofcom perspective which is very different. but that's one of the challenges. The other though, it just goes back to the previous bit of our conversation is that these are really clever, really highly paid, confident executives. And we were part-time, um, you know, vaguely public sector, uh, much, much, much less well paid <laughs> non-executives. I think I, my pay for it was something like 20,000 pounds a year. I can't, I can't quite remember, but you know, that ballpark order of magnitude difference. And um, that, so that power relation is, is quite challenging as well. And um, you know, you've got a confident board who have got something that they want to do and they're going to advocate for it and they're going to present the information to you in a particular way. You've really got to have a lot of courage to say uh, no. So you can ask questions but stopping something happening is uh, really difficult. I think our big success was having huge fights with the BBC management about their about their executive pay, and it's a difficult thing because they are in a very competitive market where people are really highly paid, so they can't cut it too far. But they were overpaying themselves; it was out of tune with the political climate. We had stand up rows, but we won that one. And um, you know, I think that that was one of the merits of that governance system which was much criticized, it was kind of continental dual board system and uh, in the end it got scrapped and replaced with a unitary board, I doubt they have stand-up fights between their non-execs and their executives and I doubt Ofcom gets into that kind of detail so I don't think that could happen again.
0: That's fascinating, so uh, the first part was probably one of the best articulations of a defense of the BBC uh, that I've heard and I, I think it's very interesting that I don't hear that many people defend the bbc as articulately as that uh around and as you can see it iplayer and all of these other things and uh from my work in, in theater world i know people go into bbc learn a lot of skills and then move into private sector or film or wherever and um, uh much much more valuable from it in that sense they are definitely providing uh training and r d but to your point there are these and i think bbc kind of uh epitomizes it in a sort of public way, but this problem with non-execs and boards and compensation and, and all of that, it um, did bring to mind that there is a comparison actually within uh, Sweden, where where you have Swedish domestic, more local CEOs or senior managements, uh, their pay is decided at a, at a lower level than uh, uh, by their boards, and sometimes it's, it's dual boards as well. Um, but where you have uh, Swedish companies, or in fact, generally applies Nordics, which are much more global in nature. So they make the claim that we could go to an American company and do this job and get paid 10 times more. They have much more trouble. But where you feel like either because it's purpose driven or because, no, we're only selling something relatively more domestic. They, they actually have less of this issue. And then some of it is cultural. They're, they're much more prepared to say, OK, well, if this is the median worker, I will cap myself at X because I don't really need another 10 million uh, Swedish kroner on that uh, great um, well I thought we'd do a small section of overrated underrated and then finish with maybe a couple of uh, pieces of advice if that's uh, if that's good for you um, so you can you can pass you can say things that are correctly rated uh, or not um, but overrated or underrated then uh, UBI universal basic income
1: overrated seems to me it's um, a neoliberal answer to a neoliberal problem. The problem is uh, people are being employed on precarious contracts, low wages, minimum wages not enforced, all of that stuff. pay them properly, make labor market regulation work, um, but you can't buy a good school with your individual basic income. You can't buy a bus service that will get you into work. So I'm a much stronger advocate of universal basic infrastructure, give people good schools, good hospitals, good transport.
0: Uh, so do you find it strange that so many people who I think would consider themselves progressive or therefore left-leaning or maybe even anti-market uh, do something, which I think it's, is it a, I don't know if it's Peter Thiel's actual idea, but he's definitely a proponent or that quite libertarian Silicon Valley bent on, on UBI.
1: I, I find it absolutely incomprehensible. I must say, yeah.
0: Okay.
1: Do you know why why it's so popular?
0: Uh, I think, uh, so there is the libertarian bent in Silicon Silicon Valley. Um, Actually, in the US, uh, this is my own personal pet theory, is they see something akin in the way that their disability benefits work. Uh, So their disability benefits are almost like a a very uh, low... um, substandard higher barrier UBI because if you can claim them you often never go off them uh, so there's a certain way of doing that uh, and I feel that through that lens they felt well this is a way that our welfare uh, the, the welfare can work plus they have this culture of the sort of the individual you you know you give something and you know you, you can make it go for you and and therefore they they've come to that and also because Silicon Valley that kind of californian uh thinking is a, there's a sort of little bubble in itself i mean you i don't know if you've been to san francisco recently but you can see these pictures you've got some of the richest people in the world and, and they work walk past a sort of homeless and a homeless drugs and a housing and all of the infrastructure problems yeah. so th- there's yeah. a there's a particular uh and we all suffer it right in our home things so, i you know i live in london and i I will walk past similar I am sure but as an outsider you can see it even even in a degree and and I think that is something which does uh discolor their thinking.
1: If it it demands to make the benefit system work better and be simpler then it's hard to argue with it um but you know that's that's not really universal basic income.
0: No I I agree but I think that is where I think that's where their thinking is that's my pet theory on it Um, Anyway, it's probably much more complex than that. Um, uh, So maybe moving one step on UBI, um, this policy idea of a job guarantee.
1: Underrated. Uh, Because um, there are lots of things that need doing in public service. And if you're paying people an employment benefit, then the marginal return on paying them a little bit more to do a job, it seems a no-brainer to me.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of, in my view, what we would call it, soft skills to actually turning up and being at work, which is very, well, very valuable to future employers, and is also very valuable to yourself, actually, both mental resilience and these other soft skills that you need to sort of go, oh, you know, I have to turn up on time and do whatever this is. Maybe it's planting new flowers in our community gardens, right? Some, something where uh, you, have that, uh, you have the incremental, although I do think a kind of upskilling general idea program might work uh, similarly, but I, I guess they're uh, cousin ideas. Okay, uh, overrated, underrated, the idea of running the economy hot, which is topical at the moment.
1: Um, I'm not sure I really know what people mean when they say that or how they would I guess
0: I guess they're meaning, or particularly in the US, uh, it's this fiscal uh, stimulus where you might be giving people fiscal money as well as monetary stimulus by these lower interest rates so that you are trying to maximize uh, where you are with uh, employment and, and, uh, and everything else, and maybe even cause uh, inflation or at least nominal uh, inflation in order to kickstart or continue growth. I think that's kind of the cluster of ideas. But like you say, people say slightly different things about it
1: yeah well i'm not a macro person i find it all a bit mysterious sometimes but um to know that you're running the economy hot you would have to know what the speed limit or what what its capacity is and i don't think that's known and i don't think it's a fixed number it depends on all kinds of things including um what demand is
0: sure okay um industrial policy or a government actually having an industrial policy, (laughs) that might be it, but industrial policy, um, overrated or underrated?
1: Well, underrated, Um, you know, since Thatcher and Reagan, we have dismissed the idea of industrial policy, it gets called uh, picking winners and people stop thinking about it. Uh, But there are all kinds of um, what we call in the jargon, horizontal policies, including competition policy, including um, skills, apprenticeships, infrastructure investment, um, that can be industrial policy. The key is you've got a government that thinks strategically about where they want the economy to go and what the economy's strengths are and where those strengths are. And we don't have that. We have a government that thinks about the next tweet, if we're lucky.
0: Yes. Um, Arrow's impossibility theorem.
1: Oh. Um, underrated or overrated? Underrated, I think. Um but I don't think people think about it very clearly. And so you know you obviously know that uh it says t- you have these few kind of vanilla assumptions about people's choices, and it turns out that mathematically that says that you can't um aggregate um a, a so- you can't aggregate for society across all the individual choices and um a lot of economists go, that's really smart and clever. What a fantastic theory. Uh, okay, let's now ignore it. And let's decide that we can calculate the improvement in social welfare that will come about for policy A, B, and C. And so I think that means that it's underrated because they don't think about the implications, um, which for me are more about uh, what Amartya Sen would call the restricted domain. What are, what's the scope in which you are thinking about whether a policy is an improvement or not and who is that affecting and so it goes back to what we were talking about earlier really Ben about you it's so hard to have one number that tells you what the answer mm-hmm. is and I think I think arrows and possibility theorem is in effect saying there's not just one number
0: um and that would hint to I guess some of the themes we talked about about thinking about things in a more uh pluralist way and also thinking about these interdisciplinary things because one number whether that's happiness or GDP is not going to give it to you and therefore trying to maximise that one number is certainly not going to give it uh, for you. Okay uh, and the last one on this, um, the New Zealand Prime Minister uh, Jacinda.
1: She's probably accurately rated don't you think?
0: Um, I think she might still be underrated. I think she's slightly underrated in her own country, Uh, and I wonder whether she will be so strong female leader with a lot of interesting ideas Uh, and why I might think she's still underrated is because she's pushed through this idea of what do they call it the New Zealand uh, living budget Uh, and therefore it's to me one of the first sort of substantial okay it's a smaller economy and it's got its own special quirks but it's um, one of the first attempts to put in some of the capitals we talked about calling them capitals whatever you know natural capital or Health, social, and other things in a way of, of forming policy, but by putting it kind of for Treasury to think about, or you know, whoever's in charge of that part. Uh, because of what we've talked about, is I don't know whether Treasury has been thinking about this enough because of everything that we said, because of their training, and because of where their data comes. And therefore, if if they if they can, or she can, or prove that something about that is going to increase the welfare of uh, of her people. Um, That will end up being uh, a pretty I think significant uh, jump in thinking about how governments uh, can think Uh, and therefore I go underrated.
1: Although I'd be interested
0: in what you think about the New Zealand living budget and that whole area.
1: Uh, I think it's a really um analytically rigorous good framework and um you know it'll be quite interesting to see how it develops over time and also whether if any political implications it it has. But I was gonna ask you if you think as a small country, a scale thing here, in that it's easier to take these approaches in smaller places. So Scotland and Wales or some English local authorities, Iceland, um, they're they're all quite small. And I just wonder if there's something about the kind of cohesion you can get in a smaller place that makes it more feasible to try these kinds of policies.
0: Um, I think so, as you could probably even add, although slightly different of talking like Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore. Uh, but I, to me, it riffs on something to do with uh, that trust and social contract, where if that remains strong, I think you can do it potentially in some larger countries. Obviously, Scandinavia is a little bit larger. But I mean, if we think about the UK, I wonder whether, it, you know, if we're prepared to do things by less central planning, so devolve a little bit more localism, and that localism and that—I mean—they're still quite big areas, right? Bigger, big economies, but they might be more New Zealand style, uh, yeah. and you—and you have that to be able to set that. Um, I kind of think, at least in theory, that there could therefore work. So I guess that is a little bit more federal, and maybe it's a little bit more like uh, Switzerland. Um, I mean, maybe that's going to be really hard in places like India, Indonesia, China, Russia, U.S. But I kind of feel like UK, which sits slightly between that, has a chance of enacting uh, some of those things. And it still, to me, I know we talk about a more polarized society in all of this, but I, I still feel, you know, and I, I've traveled around the country and even into Wales and Scotland quite a lot over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, there, are, there are still things about Britishness, um, you know, that bind us together, um, our love of the NHS, uh, the underdog sort of quirkiness, other aspects of British culture, which, although are quite hard to sort of define, I think people do put their finger on it. To, to me, that means there's enough social trust and cohesion, even whether you want to be multicultural or not, which is foundational to, to let some of this happen. But perhaps we need to push forward a little bit more in terms of innovate. Well, I guess it's innovation within government, right? This is, and that's what yeah. New Zealand have, have done. Uh, and I guess the problem is that some of it won't work out. It, by its nature some of it will have to fail and it, you if you can fail and then and then pivot that will be good but at the moment you know we're stuck in this thing where we're then not trying any, anything new and therefore in this kind of slow and steady uh, well I guess if you look at in some of these metrics GDP or HDMI HDI or things that you know the UK's got this slow and steady decline although from a from a very high base um, so I kind of would like to remain cautiously optimistic with, with some of that. You know some of those inklings coming coming through um so uh, maybe with a final couple of questions so i uh, maybe because he's on the on the record on on some of this uh we can say uh coming back to jason Furman again i he suggested um you know a few things which he feels can help growth productivity and inequality, so it's kind of win win things um and I was wondering what you would have thought about them uh so he names i think. Uh, education and investing in children. He would also name enabling work, uh, which uh, I think is allusions to getting people in the workplace, but particularly females, minorities, and uh, and that more competition and more more fluidity or dynamism. So people moving cities, I guess that's a particular US thing, but I see there's some uh, in the UK. Uh, Would you disagree with any of those points? And would you add anything into your own policy recipe?
1: I think I might disagree with getting people to move around more Uh, I think people are just quite like to stay where they are and although we've had that sort of pattern of mobility that um, you leave your small town you go to university in a city and then you go and work in London um, that one kind of mobility most people want to stay where they are so we've got to make things work for where they are and that's why I think geographic policies are really important. So that's the one thing I might disagree with. And, um, you know, even the US is not that mobile anymore. Um, Are there other win-wins? I mean, I think there's a lot of investment that would be win-win. So I think you could call it investing in natural capital, but reducing air pollution and Mm. the health benefits of that. So all that stuff, that's definitely a win-win. And particularly the kinds of green technologies where um, government coordination can de-risk markets and make them grow faster than they otherwise would, and therefore that stimulates the private investment, and, and you know that's that's all good dynamic win-wins as well. So I think there are plenty of them. They just need doing.
0: Yeah. And then he, he's got a smaller category of what he calls, I guess, in my parlance, would be win-neutral or win-tiny-bit-lose, but you're losing so much tiny that the win makes more up for that. Uh, and he puts higher taxes and minimum wage um, in that bucket, although I, I guess they've kind of, uh, they have enacted at least uh, one of those. Uh, would you agree with those? And would you add anything else in uh, in that bucket? I guess this is the kind of fairer society or looking at uh, some of the extra capital things more.
1: A minimum wage, I don't think you can say um, in generic terms, uh, it's going to, either have positive or negative effects. It depends on the context of the labor market in which it's being applied. Mm -hmm. And um, there is obviously a level of minimum wage that will reduce employment. Um, But equally, there are increases in the minimum wage that will increase demand and through the multiplier effects have positive outcomes. US minimum wage got to be so low that they're in that territory, I think. And Going to $15 minimum wages seems to be wholly beneficial once you abstract from the effects of the pandemic on employment levels. Um, so I don't think I agree on that. I've forgotten the other one already, I'm sorry.
0: Oh, uh, well, it was higher taxes.
1: Higher taxes. So there are efficiency costs of increasing taxes, um, but that says you design a tax system as well as you can and there are going to be trade-offs and you're going to have some inefficiencies and that's just too bad. If you want to have any public goods, you're going to have taxes. and Given that I think in general, private and public sector have, in the UK in particular have underinvested for a long time, then we're going to have to raise taxes.
0: And on the natural capital, whether that's biodiversity or sustainability part, uh, what do you think uh, should be highest up on uh, the policy agenda?
1: Um, well, COP26 and, and some global action, finding a way through the politics of that. Is obviously really important and then actually paying more attention to biodiversity questions and um that that cluster of issues about land use zoonotic diseases uh, soil quality agricultural productivity all of those things that for understandable reasons have been kind of second order to climate change but actually we need to think about about those as well
0: sure yeah a, a lot of it seems to me that actually economists or economic thinking does have some of the answers but the sort of what we'd call it the political economy or the political leadership uh, is not really following any of that. And therefore there's this growing gap. So it kind of almost seems to me that some of this is now a a political economy question or maybe it always has been obviously that it's intersectional.
1: I think it always has been, Um, but the politicians were, I suppose, more like economists previously in that they thought there were, uh, you know, um, right answers to problems. But it's, this is an economic analyst. You're saying, we've got this great policy. If only the politicians would implement it, then your policy is not a great policy. Yeah. You've, just got, you've got to incorporate that.
0: Yeah, I, and I think this is the point, and we alluded it to that, you know, you have to, this is why I think actually the climate assembly and that kind of work is very important because you, you have to bring your, your people along with you. There's a lot of things which only exist because humans cause them yeah. to exist in, the, in their mind, call them in, in intersubjective thoughts. Uh, and if you don't put that into your calculus, you don't you don't have a policy, right? Because it, it, then it's only a, uh, a kind of idea. Yeah,
1: that's right. And we have a lot of language for it. You know, multiple equilibriums, uh, you know, focal points in games, narrative economics. We've we've got the tools to think about that, um, but it somehow doesn't get translated into uh, what should this government do in this place at this time.
0: Great. Um, and so, final two questions. Uh, one is, um, what does uh, a productive day or week uh, look like for you um, with the work that you do? Uh, and the second question is, do you have um, any advice for maybe, say, young people thinking about being an economist, or particularly if you're uh, not from a kind of middle class uh, background who would, uh, you know, think of a, uh, being an economist as, as potentially the job uh, uh, to do, what, you know, what would might spark in a young people's mind about why this would be uh, a great thing to do or you know your observations of about the career that you've had
1: oh well a productive day um i try to make them all productive i suppose <laughs> it's it's very busy um and i've just in the past uh, few months really for the first time in my career apart from a six-month period as acting chair of the bbc trust had somebody to look after my diary for and that's made me so much more productive um so that's been fantastic but it's always a mix and some of the most productive moments are you know walking to work or walking in the botanic garden or walking the dog and the thoughts are jostling around in your head and something falls into place so that's that's good and every day needs some of that you know just not thinking or doing anything in particular but letting the thoughts run around in your head that's a productive day um, e- economics is a great subject. It's, um, intellectually powerful. It's interesting. You don't have to be an economist and to study economics and enjoy it and get a lot out of it. Um, the, the downside is that lots of places still teach economics in, uh, a, a mathematical way that's too mathematical. You know, I think the math is important. the Empirics is important, but they overdo it. And that's the downside. But I think my advice would be. If you're interested in big challenges, um, you know, how to make society fairer, how to make sure there are enough jobs, how to bring about climate sustainability, then it's one of the most powerful disciplines that you can um, study to think about those kinds of questions. And although economists have a bad reputation for being, you know, selfish or all about the money, actually, most economists are really highly motivated by what can we do to make things better. And that's the the driving force in in lots of what we do. I've done pretty much everything you can do as an economist. I've worked in the private sector, I've worked in the treasury, I've been a journalist, I've been a consultant, I've done public service roles, and I've done academic stuff. And so that's the other benefit that you can, um, you can do all kinds of other things, all kinds of variety of things with this toolkit that you get from studying economics.
0: Great. So uh, with that final question, uh, I'll say uh, thank you very much. It's been really enjoyable chatting to you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Great. If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.